All right, you have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, please? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And the message is entitled, Walk in Love. Paul has told the Ephesians that the walk of the believers to be worthy of the calling with which they were called back in chapter 4, verse 1. That begins the second major division, the walk of the believer. From chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, you have the walk worthy focused upon unity. Chapter 4, 17 to 32, it's in purity. And from chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9, it's in harmony. So unity, purity, and harmony, those are the headings. Now, here in chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, our walk in love is in contrast to the lost, as we'll see. In chapter 5, 8 through 14, our walk is in light, in contrast to our past darkness. Then in chapter 5, verse 15 through 21, our walk is in wisdom by being filled with the Holy Spirit, not worldly stimuli. And in chapter 5, 22 to 23, our walk is in submission in our marriage by our relationship to Christ. And last of all, chapter 6, 1 through 9, our walk is in submission of parents, children, and slaves in their relationship to Christ. And so Paul admonished the Ephesians to put off daily the old man by naming some specific sins inconsistent with the new man created according to God in righteousness and true holiness, he's told us in chapter 4, verse 25 to 32. There's a certain way that we used to live. We put the old man off. We put the new man on by the renewing of our mind. And it's that warfare that goes on. Choices we make every day, every second, every week. So Paul exhorts the believers to walk in love now. The love of God for others in contrast to the love for self. As lost sinners in the world. Verse 1 through 7. In verse 1 through 2, we have the walk in the love of God for others, which we're going to focus on. The next time we'll focus on the walk in love for self, the old man, in verse 3 through 7. So let's look at the exhortation of Paul to walk in the love of God for others, which is characterized by three things. Let me read verse 1 and 2 here of chapter 5. He says, Therefore... Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The exhortation of Paul to walk in love, the love of God for others, is characterized by the following. First, the example of walking in love, verse 1. Second, we have the extreme of walking in love, the first part of two. Then you have the extent of walking in love, the rest of two. 
The example of walking in love comes first. Notice verse 1. The Apostle Paul here declared the general appeal. Listen to his words. Therefore, be imitators of God. Paul used the word therefore to progress the teaching as a transitional phase right here. Some say the word marks the conclusion of what precedes. But the word is more a connective and transitional word, and it's used for the new admonitions that he has given to us already in verse 1, 17 of chapter 4, verse 1 here of chapter 5. He'll do it in 7, he'll do it in 15, and then in 614. The Greek scholar Lenski says this, quote, If verse 1 and 2 form the conclusion of chapter 4, verse 32, the new piece would begin with dia, not nous. So, though it's translated in the English, therefore, they're two different Greek words. It would be dia. And would be at odds and variance with the other three admonitions. And so, for that reason... This is not really a concluding word at this point, as sometimes we point out with the word dia. Now, notice Paul introduced the new topic to be imitators of God in love. The imperative command from the previous verse, verse 32 of chapter 4, is repeated and broadened now in the command to be imitators of God. The tense is the imperative present middle, literally ever be. The middle voice always indicates the person is a participant. He's not passive. He has to be involved. The word imitators means to imitate or mimic, literally. That's where you get the word from. When you mimic someone... Either you are trying to impersonate them or make fun of them. (laughs) One of the two. This word appears seven times in the New Testament regarding Paul, other godly people, and what is good. 1 Corinthians 4.16, 11.1, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, 2.14, and then in Hebrews 6.12, and 1 Peter 3.13. In fact, to the Corinthians, in both those passages, he says, Mimic me as I mimic Christ. He tells that to the Corinthians. Follow me because I'm following Christ. In other words. This mimicking notice is to be of God. The references to the Father, and we've seen this constant mention of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a mimicking of God's communicable attributes here that he imparts to us to be able to manifest them, such as holiness, righteousness, goodness, mercy, kindness. If you were with us in our uh, study of theology, the communicable attributes are those that God gives to us that he has that we can manifest. The non-communicable are the ones that he alone possesses, like all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and many others, okay? Immutable, and so on and so forth. Those he alone has. But there's some attributes that he allows us and communicates to us that we can possess as children of God. So, 
by knowing God's attributes that are endowed to us, then we can mimic God. We can act like God. We can follow his example. But most of all, to mimic the example of his selfless love by um, denying himself and enduring the painful loss and agony of all that Jesus went through for us. Hardly anything's ever mentioned about the Father in the Scripture. Nor do pastors and teachers touch it that much. But you stop and think about his example. Here's the mimicking the love of the Father. The love of the Father for us as lost individuals that he gave his son the pain, the sacrifice, the agony. All those things because he's a person. He has emotion. He feels. He he gets. He can be grieved. To be able to give his son for us. Now, if you're a father, you know how difficult that would be for you to sacrifice your son for others. You can just imagine the scenario if you had to make those choices. God the Father gave his only begotten son to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Father gave. He's the primary example as he gave us a son. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the specific appeal now. First the general appeal. Now here's the specific. As dear children. Paul identified the believers of Ephesus as being... In the family of God is not the first time we've, we've been through this before. The word dear, agapitos, from the word agape. It means those beloved by God with the idea of um, dearness and fondness, of worth, of value. By the relationship to the father and by the relationship to the son, we're in the family of God. There's just a certain affection and love that you have for family that you don't have for other people. And yet there are some people that become almost like your family and they're allowed to be in your family real close. Ephesians 1, 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them. Both loved us. The father gave his son, and we're going to see the son gave his life. They have received, at this point, the Ephesians and experienced the benefit that came from God's love. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, you might jot that down. The riches in Christ. Because he died for our sins, and he bequeathed all that is his to us. The word children, technon, means those by the new birth that become children of God in this family. By the proclamation of the gospel of salvation and by the conviction of their sin that is brought by the Holy Spirit of God. Nobody can be convinced into the kingdom of God. Sometimes we, we miss the mark thinking that if somehow I can 
study hard enough, I can convince this person. And certainly we should study very, very hard. Uh, sometimes we figure, well, you know, if I can just find the right example, if I can just know where he's at, so if I can identify with him, then I can. But none of that saves a person or convicts a person. It's the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit Himself that knocks on the door of the heart to try to put light on their consciousness to understand that they are lost sinners, enemies of God, dead in trespasses and sins. And when God sheds that light and the sinner is open to that light, conviction comes. And then they must make a decision to repent and then salvation comes. But it's the Spirit of God who does this. Now you and I are the instruments. God uses us. And once again, we should study. And we should be praying that God give us wisdom when we speak and we communicate. But push comes to shove. It's the Spirit of God who does all of this. He's the one that saves. Paul indicated the reality of their new spiritual nature. Notice just as children are born to natural parents and have a natural sin nature, so the children of God have a supernatural divine nature. Little sinners sin by nature being related to their parents who are big sinners. <laughs> children of God have the capacity not to sin as a habit of life being related to their heavenly father. There's a parental identification and relationship. Just as natural children bear their, the resemblance of their parents and their family, their characteristics, their genetic makeup, so the children of God bear the characteristics of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the family of God. Children at times look just like their parents. It's scary sometimes. They even sound like them. You call on the phone. The daughter will sound just like the mom. You know, they just have the same intonation, kind of the same words. And, or, or you're looking at them and they stand the same way or they make the same expression because you're around them all the time. And they're genetically, it's inside you and, and you have the visual outside you too. Children of God will resemble their Heavenly Father, though never perfect or sinless. And we learn about our Heavenly Father as we walk with Him, as we study, as we read the Word of God. As we realize what he's done for us. We see God in the person of Christ. Jesus, the visible form of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 tells us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the Father, I one. So we have a very good idea what the Father is like. Because we know exactly what Jesus is like. Children, again, are the greatest example of their parents as they mimic them due to the fact that they always see them and, and they love them. And because they love them, they love to aspire to be like them. When a little boy looks at his dad and, and he grows up with the example and he, he, he thinks his dad is his greatest hero. If his father is godly and example and he's there for him all the time, there's, there's no one that you look up to and love more than your father or your mother for that fact. God the Father begets every person who agrees with the message of the gospel of salvation. But they are sinners separated from God 
and under God's wrath. John 3.36 says, He who has a son has life, and he who has not son, the son has not life, and the wrath of God abides in him. Those are some heavy words that we can't take lightly. In other words, God gives a choice to men and women whether they're going to be under his wrath or under his love by the choice they make regarding the son. It isn't the fact that God has predestined you to heaven and others he predestined to hell. There's no such thing ever taught in the Bible. Now, men teach that, but the Bible doesn't teach that. My Bible teaches that God died for the whole world and that all can be saved if they repent. Therefore, those who end up in hell is by choice, not by predestination. Also, that Christ died for our sins and is able to forgive them by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith points me back to the gospel, what it says about God, about me, about sin. Grace is unmerited. I don't deserve it. So by the revelation and by something I don't deserve, I believe and agree with God, I can repent and I'm saved. Also that through the word of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, they can be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. Marvel not that I say to you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, can I go back to my mother's womb? He says, no. He says, like the wind, you don't see where it's coming from, but you see the effects of it, right? That's the person who's born again. It doesn't change on the outside, but you see an effect upon his life different from before. If you see the wind coming from the north, you know that tree's going to be bowing down to the south. And you know the wind's coming from the north because the tree's leaning south. When you look at a person the way they used to live and all of a sudden there's a radical change. They're not partying anymore. They're not getting loaded. They're not stealing. They're not lying. They're not creating trouble and havoc. And you, Something has happened. Some effect has touched them. And often people ask, what happened to you? And they say, well, I accepted Jesus. I got born again. What? See, they can't deny the change, but sometimes they don't like what you tell them changed you. They can't deny the change, but they won't accept the person who changed you. God is not limited to save those who have been involved in the vilest or the basis of sinful practices either. He's not limited. He didn't say, well, I only die for those who committed these sins. And those over here, well, it's too late for you. The Bible knows nothing about that. He makes all whiter than snow, as the psalm says. He buries and casts their sins as far as these as the west and the deepest ocean. Psalm 103, 12, Micah 7, 19. He never mentions him again. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus as he opened up the epistle, chapter 1, verse 3. He gives us access to the Son by the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 18. 
And he desires to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3.20. All of this through the new birth. The example of walking in love is to be like our father. No greater compliment can you get as you're growing up. Someone says, you know, you look so much like your dad. Or where they say to you, you know, you, you're just like your dad. You're a man of character. You're just like your mom. You're a woman of character. Wow. Because you see your dad. You see your mom. They've been an example. They instruct you. They encourage you. They reprove you. They punish you. They pray for you. Notice, secondly, comes the extreme of walking in love, the first part of two. The Apostle Paul declared the general exhortation first and walk in love. Paul was telling them that they were to be a visible example of love to others. The word walk, peripateo, means to order one's behavior or conduct. The tense is the present active, ongoing and continuously. They're children of God. The word appears eight times in this epistle. Paul is speaking about the love of God, not human love. The Greek language is much richer than our English, expressing love in various qualities and forms by different words. There's the word eros, the love denotes the love of man for a woman and longing and craving desire for sexual expression and satisfaction. Now, God created us as sexual beings for the context of marriage, for reproduction and for pleasure. But you take that outside of marriage and it becomes destructive and dirty. And it just destroys people. Yet God intended it from the beginning. Genesis 2.24. We'll get into it in chapter 5 verse 21 also. Or 31. Sexual lust desires to conquer a person's sexual purity and innocence. Therefore it is selfish to gratify oneself by persuading, pressuring, or forcing another without regards for their physical, emotional, or spiritual defilement, their guilt, or the destruction that's brought on their life. This is our sinful nature. Our whole society is just inundated in perversion sexually today in every way. I always say, you know, it's a sad day when I have to say, thank God I grew up in the 60s. Um, because the 60s were, were bad. But uh, not a, a tenth as bad as today. <laughs> but it shows you that people keep using the word, we're evolving. No, we're, we're, we're devolving downward. We're degenerating. There's the word phileo, denoting the love of emotion, feelings, and compatibility. Attracting and binding two or more people together as friends. Close. They do anything for each other. They like each other's company. But this kind of love is legitimate, as legitimate as it is, 
but it's fickle. It's based on conditional things like feelings, emotions, or things that are done. So, at best, you can depend on each other, but there may be a line where you cross, where you say, you know, you're not my friend anymore. It could be because a person's too emotional and too fickle and not really a real friend, or it could be just because something really bad was done. Again, legitimate love. But this kind of love, emotional and feelings, is used most of the time by men to manipulate or convince women to have sex with them. And so the hypocrite, the actor, is really the man, not the woman. Now, a lot of things have changed. Today, I don't know who's more guilty. <laughs> okay? It's very strange today. Then there's the word storgo, denoting family love of children for parents, uncles, cousins, or even those who are real close to the family. It's um, unnatural love uh, depicted in Romans one thirty one and 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. So that family love and and one of the markings of the last day is no natural affection, no family love. If you look to our society, we kill our babies. We divorce our husbands and wives over nothing, incompatible differences and um, whatever. And um, women are leaving their husbands at a higher rate than ever before in their children. The reverse is going on. Unnatural. This love is crucial for the continuation and preservation of society. Family love. That's why it's an amazing thing when people are born again and they come from a broken home or, or whatever it may be, that they, they find a, 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 such a, a gem in the family of God because they have people who love them, who care for them, who are there for them. And sometimes... The family of God becomes closer to us than actual family members. That happens sometimes because sometimes a person comes to the Lord and their parents or their family is very religious and they really ostracize them or consider them as dead. Certainly it happens in the Jewish religion. And certainly as a, if you're a Catholic and you came to the Lord and all your family is Catholic, you get a little... A little tension there, guaranteed. So it, it becomes difficult at times. This love is foundational for a child to develop and to mature to an adult. But he has that visual of family love, father and mother, parents to children, uncles, all of this. It's a healthy balance that God has put in the family. It's the nucleus of society. And then there's the word agape, which is used exclusively for God's divine love that we find right here in our text. Uh, his divine love for sinners and saints, um, the word is agape, there's different forms of it, and, uh, but it's defined in John 3.16, as I quoted it before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The, the shortest definition of agape love is giving. 
giving. God gave. That, that'll solidify the word. It isn't taking, it's giving. The word is exclusively found in the Bible for the love of God with its unique quality of giving unselfishly and completely to meet the needs of someone else. Again, it's defined in John 3.16, and this love is imparted to the believer as a potential, but never forced upon them by God. In other words, you and I have the capacity to manifest agape love, but we don't always yield to it, and God doesn't force it upon us. We have volition. Sometimes we allow our emotional love to not yield to God's agape love. Sometimes it's the temptation of the eros, the sexual love, that we don't allow God's agape love to control us. Sometimes we worship our family more than God, and that hinders the love of God. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the specific exhortation next. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Paul makes the transition from the father's love to the son's love to give the manner of his love. The degree of love, notice, is compared to the love of Christ as Christ's love does. Literally, even as or like. This marks the purity of his love in that it was not based on favoritism, but unconditional. What I mean by that is that it's based not on physical attraction or appeal. God doesn't look down and say, hey, I think I'll save her, man. She's foxy looking. That guy, I, 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 that's not what it's about. Or this guy's wealthy and that one isn't. He's, that's not how he does it. It was not based on what Jesus could gain or benefit from us. If God could gain anything from me, it would be a headache if he could get one. It is simply based on his immense love for his fallen creation to be saved. God is so different from us. The tense is the indicative, active, constant, unchanging. We've talked about and we studied Noah or Jonah that it, repent, it repented God or he, they relented of, of their sins and God forgave them. And so people, well, God changed. No, God didn't change his mind. He said, if you don't repent, I'll pour out my wrath. If you do repent, I'll forgive you because I'm holy. So if people repent, God didn't change his mind. The people changed their mind. God acted according to his holiness. It's simple. Notice the degree is particularly for the believer, giving himself for us. The indicative errors active here is the historical to indicate the supreme act of love by Christ. A historical fact. It took place. The saint that has repented and been saved has applied this to their life and made benefit of it. The saint is depending and trusting on the Son continuously now. 
Then notice Paul marks the method of his love by what Jesus did in giving himself for us. The giving of himself indicates as sin for us. Uper is the word. A substitute becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. He swapped our position. He's the son of God. He became a sinner. We were sinners. We become sons of God. There's a difference between the son and sons, okay? Don't confuse them. The offering of himself is in our place, Matthew 20, 28, 1 Timothy 2, 6. A ransom for many. Why many, not all? Because not all will repent. It's a choice. The receiving of the penalty of sin and death for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6 says. The receiving of the Father's wrath becoming literal sin as our substitute. In Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he cries it out from the cross in Matthew 27, 46. God the Father being holy could not look upon sin with any condonance or permission or approval. Having become literal sin, God the Father poured out his wrath on the Son to... Pay the price for sin through death that we might not have to pay it ourselves and be eternally separated from God. The provision for and by which all sinners can be saved if they believe and repent. First John two two says he became he, he is the propitiation. Now the word propitiation goes back to the Old Testament Hebrew, that which satisfied the demands of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours alone, but the whole world. Wow. The key theme that makes it all possible is the love of God. Mentioned some twenty times in this epistle. 20 times. 10 times, agapao. Ephesians 1, 6, 2, 4, 5, 2, 5, 25, 5, 28, 5, 33, 6, 24. 10 times, merely agape. 1, 4, 1, 15, 2, 4, 3, 17, 3, 19, 20 times. It's only six chapters. (laughs) Nobody illustrates this point better than Paul. Listen, 2 Timothy 4, 6-7, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, In the time of my departures at hand, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As you know, Paul was stoned, thrown in prison, beat up, often in the deep, the ocean, shipwrecked. 
ran out of town. <laughs> Stoned one time at Lystra. Caught up to the third heaven. The man was an incredible example of love for those who hated him. The outline of the epistle is based on and centered on the love of God. Listen carefully. I gave it to you in the introduction, but listen carefully. The first three chapters, we have the wealth of the believer by the love of God. You find the word love in 1.6, 115, 2.4, The wealth of the believer by the love of God. The second division comes in chapter 4, as we've pointed out already, verse 1 down to chapter 6, verse 9. This is the walk of the believer in the love of God. The wealth is by the love of God. The walk is in the love of God. 4-2, And the third division is the warfare of the believer through the love of God. Chapter 6, 10 to 24. You find it in 6.23 and 6.24. So listen carefully. The wealth of the believer by the love of God. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. The walk of the believer in the love of God. Chapter 4 to chapter 6, verse 9. And the war for the believer through the love of God. By, in, and through. But it's the love of God. That makes you more than a conqueror. The distinguishing mark of the believer, as you know, in the church is to be the love of God, agape. God is the absolute source. Listen carefully. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love, and all these words are agape. In this, the love of God is manifested towards us. That God was has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 1 John 4, 8, and 9. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13, 35. The agape love of God is sufficient for all things. It never fails. Believes all things, holds all things. Agape never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, I believe, is chapter, verse 8, I believe, where it's said. The God love of God is the motive that is to be behind everything a believer does. Because there's a reason by which God will reward us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. The motive of the heart. If what I do is not based on agape love... You may receive the benefit of what I do or say, but I will get no reward for it because God sees my heart, my motive. The fruit of the Spirit is agape love. The other seven manifestations are a manifestation of love in Galatians 5.22. Many people teach the eight fruits of the Spirit. It's not fruits, plural. It's singular in the Greek. Agape. The other seven, the follower manifestations of agape love. Some people teach that agape love 
is the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wrong. Agape love is the fruit of the Spirit. And the motivation for what I do that honors God and I will be rewarded is agape love. The empowerment for service is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. There's a difference between the baptism for empowerment for service and the love that is the motive behind everything that I will be rewarded. One's the empowerment for service. The other one is the motivation behind that service. You can't confuse the two. Two distinct things. 1 John 4, 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, literally freedom of speech. That's what boldness is. In that day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Again, we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about being born again, growing, developing, maturing, pressing forward, moving on, trusting God, growing in the church, being involved, being responsible to our marriage, to our children, whatever level of life we're at, until the day we die. The extreme of walking in love is to be like the sun. <laughs> Notice thirdly, the extent of walking in love, the last little portion of verse 2. The Apostle Paul declared Jesus gave himself willfully as a gift. Listen to his words. An offering and sacrifice to God. Paul portrays Jesus as, an off, as offering himself. The word offering, as you know, refers to the, a gift one presents to the priest to be offered to God at the altar. The person would present their own offering and it would be free will. And the person would offer that lamb at his own cost. And the person offered the offering without any thought of repayment. The person brought the offering because there was no other way to have access to God. God set the rules. Notice this was Jesus. So believers' love is to be a gift to others, voluntary of our own free will. Verse 2 is an application. As Jesus did, so now we. In word and deed, for their benefits. In spite that they don't deserve it. In obedience to the leading of God. Then notice Paul portrayed Jesus as sacrificing himself. The word sacrifice refers to the one to be slain and die as the offering presented by the priest up to God. Both words, offering and sacrifice, emphasize the picture of death. And it's not a pretty sight. It was very bloody. As they cut the juggler, blood goes everywhere. Then you have to start cutting it apart, laying it on the altar. The animal would be complete. Or accomplished. 
as the purpose that it intended. It became the token, the blood, upon the altar, the atonement, Leviticus 17.11. I've given you the blood as a token. Genesis 3.21, God killed an animal and atoned for the sins of Adam and Eve and clothed them. The precious blood of Jesus Christ atoned for our sins. This is the blood of the New Testament shed for the remission of sins, he said in the communion at the Last Supper. The sacrifice would be sufficient. The animal was never coming back from the sacrifice. This was Jesus. So the believer's love is to be sacrificial up to God, sufficient to meet whatever need. Because we're children of God now. We have examples of Father and the Son. Sufficient to meet the need of a person in need as the Lord leads us. Of the person in sin. Of the person in grief. Or you fill in the blank. As God leads you. As God directs you to somebody. As God allows you to be the ears of whatever's going on. That you would say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He was both the sacrifice and the high priest. <laughs> both. Note the apostle Paul declared... The offering and sacrifice of Jesus was pleasing to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Paul described it as a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. The word aroma means a fragrance that is pleasant and of a delight. The imagery goes back to the Old Testament sacrifice laid on the brass altar and the smell of barbecue meat ascending up. Sometimes we'll walk out of the church here and say, here, I'll have some meat on the stove. And you can smell it all over. Or you ever drive by in and out and you smell it? Same kind of stuff. Paul affirmed that Jesus met all the requirements of God to be our substitute on the cross. There was no shortcuts. Satan offered Jesus a shortcut. If you're the son of God, or since you're the son of God, fall down and worship me. And then he says, I'll give you all this. No shortcuts. He was keeping them from going to the cross. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God without sin. Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew 1, 23. Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Paul confirmed that Jesus was accepted as the payment for our sins, the world. Jesus on the cross said it is finished in John 19.30. All was finished. The work of atonement that provided redemption and forgiveness for all who would call upon his name. The angels said to the woman, He's not here for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Not there. 
This was Jesus. And so the love of the believer is to be pleasing and acceptable. A sweet-smelling aroma to God towards others. Love must be our motive on anything. Again, Paul illustrates this in a most basic form. Listen carefully, Philippians 4.18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. They had sent him some things and some, perhaps some money. And he says, this is a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. Though I have no need, I've learned either way to handle life. Little, a lot, doesn't matter. But it's pleasing to God. Wow. The Lord Jesus of his own will determined to die for a lost man. 1 Peter 1.20 puts it this way, before time began, he says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. The last time is the age of grace. Abandoning his glory to become man, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, emptied himself of his glory and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He divested himself of his glory, took on a human body to veil that Shekinah glory, lest men would look upon him and be destroyed, that he'd be able to walk among men and be the very sin sacrifice to atone for the world and the sins of Adam and Eve that were passed on to all men, resulting in death. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. But I lay down my life, John ten eighteen. In fact, he said, I have both power to lay it down and take it up again. Whoa. You want to make sure you pay attention and follow someone who can say that and do it. <laughs> the believer is like, in like manner, then is to be like Jesus as a living sacrifice for others. Many of Christians and missionaries have um, laid down their lives for the gospel and for taking the gospel to others. Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. When someone defends somebody and loses their life and do what we call him a hero, When a soldier would call in artillery on himself to destroy the enemy, that's not suicide. That's a hero. Suicide is when you're selfish and thinking of yourself and you take your life because you want to escape this life and you think you'll escape, but you won't. 
So a soldier calling in artillery to destroy the enemy because he has no other options, that's a hero. That's not a coward. That's not suicide. That is the greatest form of heroic love to lay down your life for your fellow man. The believer's love is to be sufficient at all times and very sacrificial at times. Not just a matter of convenience or superficiality. All of us can do that. I don't mean to say that I can um, pay for the sins of others as Jesus did. But I am saying that at times I will have to bear the cost of the sins of others against me lovingly and graciously. I will have to absorb the cost. It has to end with me. It's done. As well as the sins of others that I come to know that I don't sound them out or tell others. Listen carefully, 1 Peter 4, 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And sometimes that sin is against you personally, and it has crushed you and betrayed you, and it's the highest form of treachery at times. And yet that person may come back and ask your forgiveness. And we are to forgive. Knowing that we cannot forgive, then we are pressed towards the throne of grace. That through him we may be able to forgive. In fact, chapter 4, verse 32, he said you're to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Now, there are some situations when God allows a person, even though they will forgive that person, that they don't have to continue in a binding relationship such as marriage. When there is adultery, it is not a command to divorce. It's an option. If the person wishes to forgive as there's repentance, then that's always the best. But God knows of the horrible, treacherous thing that does to people sometimes in heart that he allows the dissolvement of a marriage only and only in the case of adultery. Though the person might say, can you forgive me? And that person says, you know, I forgive you, but I cannot remain to be your husband or wife. That's legitimate. And there should be no stigmatism upon that individual that makes that choice, even though they may forgive them, but they can't continue in the marriage. They are completely free to do so. Only in adultery. That's the only exception. There's no other exception. Are we clear on that? Very, very clear. And so, God's love is sacrificial. It costs us, doesn't it? <laughs> So we know we can't do it, so we have to walk with him. That's what it's all about in Ephesians. 
The extent of walking in love is to be as a pleasant aroma to God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, he'll say one day. But he can equally be saying things like that now as we live out our life as a sacrifice to God. Present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Wow. This is the exhortation of Paul to walk in the love of God for others. Characterized by the example of walking in love, it is to be like our Father. The extreme of walking in love is to be like the Son. And the extent of walking in love is to be as a pleasant aroma to God. Everybody, there's not one exception. <laughs> All of us. And so, Jesus always brings me to the end of myself. Because this is a tall order, I can't do it. I need to abide in Christ. I need to draw from Him and no one else. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of us, Lord. And Lord, there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who speak to them or over the internet, Lord. That they're not born again, Lord. That you would convict them of their sin and allow them to see your love for them. And they would call on your name. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to repent of your sins, be born again, maybe you're over the internet, you can accept them right now. By grace through faith, your prayer to him, not to us. And he will cleanse you, make you a child of God, walking into the family of God. This is your prayer of repentance if you want to accept Jesus Christ, right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.